You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and this week, Herds, we kick off our spooky month spectacular, <laughs> our Halloween haunting, oh. our October extravaganza. Mm-hmm. We are doing a stretch of kind of disconnected, vaguely spooky atmospheric stories, mm-hmm. starting with Edgar Allan Poe's Murder in the Rue Morgue yeah. and the Purloin yeah. Letter. We are doing them a little bit out of order, uh-huh. but frankly... I think that the Purloin Letter and the and the Murders in the Rue Morgue go together mm. very well thematically for no other reason than because they bookend nicely with discussions about the analysis of logic and reasoning. Can I tell you, it's been so long since I've sat down and read these stories by Edgar Allan Poe. And even though they were written like more than 100 years ago, they are still kind of quite yeah, entertaining. Yeah, I, I will say, I thought these were incredibly boring to reread with the solution already in mind. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, to reread? Yes. I guess so. I mean, you, you have to remember that these are not detective stories in the sense that you're really supposed to be able to solve mm. them from the beginning. It's it's kind of a an interesting situation that, that Poe is writing in because he's clearly writing these stories with the intent to educate, yeah. as a lot of early detective fiction was, to get people to think about how to reason for themselves how to put clues together, Mm -hmm. you don't really have enough time to properly figure it out. There's a bit of a weird kind of, I guess, disconnect to me Mm. where the stories, as you say, a lot of early detective fiction was trying to do, getting people to engage in reasoning and thought and plotting out how Mm -hmm. these crimes could have been done, but also at the same time expecting you to do it inductively, which isn't really reasoning. Yeah, no, for sure. Let's get into the, the solutions, at least in a, in the strictest sense, because we've read the whole of both of these stories, and Flex is going to be challenged the latter part of the show to actually uh, submit his own solutions to these stories, because as we've kind of alluded to, the solutions are very silly and stupid, and like they make sense in the broadest sense, yep. but like none of it makes any sense. But we can get a little bit of a glimpse into Poe's mind as he's writing these, because he very much puts himself into the character of Dupin. Um, a part of the solution of the Purloin letter is that the criminal they're trying to catch, mm-hmm. the police think that there are poets, and then Dupin points out that actually he's a mathematician, but even a mathematician will be very easily caught. It is because he's both a poet and a mathematician uh, that they are a genius in yep. every sense of the word. And that phrase in itself saying, yeah. I think that if I, Edgar Allan Poe, happen to be both a poet and someone who thought critically about things, then I would be a true genius because I am two things at once that seem to be diametrically opposed because all poets are fools and all mathematicians are geniuses, Mm -hmm. though boring. If we can mix those two things, we can create something that is truly special. So yeah, you you can learn a lot about his mentality writing these stories, just looking at that poetic discussion there. I did want to touch on something then in that regard that you raised to me before we started recording this episode, which is that a lot of the kind of philosophical attachments to these stories are kind of left out in a lot of reprints and republications, for example, in the... Uh, most full edition of the text that we were able to find. Mm. There is a good few paragraphs devoted to just rambling on what it is to think and what it (laughs) is to understand stuff before the text says something to the effect of... Uh, the narrative which follows will appear to the reader somewhat in light of a commentary upon the propositions just advanced. Yep. And yep. most 
prints seem to start after that line. Yeah, this is something that I noticed as I was just trying to pick an edition mm. of the book to read. The, the thesis statement of the essay that is The Murders in the Rue Morgue mm. is completely extracted. The, the phrase saying that a detective is like a chess player, you know, those phrases which have become so ingrained in the idea of what a real detective story is, you know, it's yeah. this battle of wits between the two chess players. But people cut it out because it's boring to read. A lot of the publications I found start with, I was living in Paris with Dupin, and this is the story of us discovering mm. a murder. And I don't know exactly why it is. I would assume it's because it's just seen as kind of unpalatable. Yeah. The idea that you could just have a multiple page breakdown of what it means to think and deduce logically. It's kind of interesting to me because we, we read some Sherlock Holmes just to kind of get in the mindset of early detective fiction. And one of the complaints we had of that story was that it spent far too long in the second half of the story just explaining what the crime was and who all the characters were and how done it. Like, it's, it's very silly. And I think that that's a legitimate criticism. But I think that in this case, to cut out the waxing philosophical on the nature of logic and reasoning, I think is a bit sad. I feel like that's part of Poe's, like, his attempts to educate yeah, people. Yeah, like I, it, it I, feels like a sacrifice for the sake of some other goal, whereas it clearly the text yeah. itself is very attached to those ideals. It really is. It's very strange. Even though this story has a detective that falls into the same traps that we've criticized over and over, of the detective being too smart and of you know, making reasoning based on information that doesn't really make any sense to us. Or exist, yes. <laughs> or exist. Well, that's the thing. The very first thing he deliberates on is what is the narrator currently thinking at the time? Mm. And he uses information, as you say, that doesn't exist in the text yet or even in the physical world yet, yeah. essentially. And also bases off of, well, these are the things that we've been talking about the past few days. And so to us, it seems really bewildering, but like... It's not even that crazy, but the way that Poe <laughs> lays it all out, it's, it seems like madness a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, his, his solutions to his mysteries are very simple to the point of absurdity. I think, I think simple to the point of absurdity is uh, about as much as one can say <laughs> without mm. kind of drawing things out too much, you know. We'll talk uh, about the explicit solutions at the tail end of the show, sure. but it really does, like, absolutely stretch the plausibility mm. and almost counter to the idea of logic and reasoning. It very mm. much feels much more in that line of induction that the solutions seem to present themselves. Yeah. There's no plausible way that you could have reached them even if you were trying to put yourself no. in full to the text and what it was saying. Yeah. I mean... And again, this is one of those bizarre things where I can see Poe's line of thinking, but in practice doesn't make any sense because for the Rue Morgue murders, he uncovers the truth through reading a newspaper, which, as we will all remember, is what these stories mm -hmm. were published into. It's why it's so difficult to find the original copy of the text because there were multiple editions. Yeah. He actually updated his solution as more facts about the real murder that that story is mm -hmm. based off of came out. Like he kept updating his solution until he was right, which is really like weird and a little bit, a little bit seedy. But, you know, we, we have to remember that Poe is writing this story where his hero is using facts and reasoning and reading the newspaper because he wants to say to his audience, you should go out mm -hmm. and read a book too. You should not stop at the base mathematical reasoning of things. You should try to use inductive reasoning on the answer. But yeah, he, he's trying to educate people on these are the ways in which you should educate yourself, mm -hmm. but doesn't really give the audience the opportunity to learn those facts. Like the, the newspaper article that helps him solve the Rue Morgue murders doesn't appear until he's already sat down at a table with a gun 
being like, all right, criminals about to walk in the room. Yeah, it, it is pretty strange. Like, there's a lot of inductive reasoning I could do to assume how Poe kind of made the yeah. story like that. You know, I could sit here and I could, oh, I could sure. say, well, perhaps Poe being a man of the times of these less educated and less <laughs> deductive reasoning folks was trapped in yeah. the same well, cycle of illogical thought that they were as well. <laughs> but like, I'm just... To take it well, absolute pot thing. shots, but at the same time, very much in the spirit oh, yeah, of the yeah, text. Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing, right? Like, I will not say that all people at the time were simpletons. I will not say that, but I feel like Poe <laughs> thought so, at least in some degree, because he's he's trying real hard to make people read books and like read the newspaper that his books mm. happen to be in. Yeah, really, uh, really. <laughs> this I was just love. a marketing campaign for everything else he was doing. I mean, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to disagree with that one. It's very, it's very impressive. All right. Well, herds. I suppose uh, we shall we shall pause here yeah. in the first episode of our 2021 Halloween extravaganza, and uh, we will resume with solutions and full spoilers at the end of today's show. So we'll uh, see you there. Stick around. This is Death of the Reader. You're listening to Two SCR 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is Flex and Herds escorting you through the haunted halls of Edgar Allan Poe, master of gothic horror, and, according to some, the grandfather of murder mystery. Today we have on Mm -hmm. esteemed guest Christian Henriksen, the master of the murder mystery blog, Mysteries Short and Sweet, and it is a pleasure to have him on. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. Poe was an incredibly influential writer, attested to by how we're still talking about him today. (laughs) <laughs> on this show, no less. Most murder mystery authors can trace their influential roots back to Poe in some way. He inspired certain tropes in the genre, like secret passages and typical structures of the murder mystery, like the crime being presented, the detective alighting upon clues, and finally cornering the suspect in dramatic fashion. But also, damsels in distress. Are damsels simply easy prey as murder victims, or do you think there was a particular societal influence taking Poe's writing hand with that last one? I mean, we're, we're 180 years away from the those times. But yes, uh, I think if you look at the other parts of literature, the what people were writing about in that time, I mean, it is a common trope that uh, women need to be, how, how should I put it delicately? It, <laughs> they, they needed to t- be taken care of. Uh, they were sensitive creatures and, uh, well, uh, people preyed upon them. Yeah. So yes, I think that's a... <clears throat> It's a typical time, a typical thing for the time. Do you think it's uh, at all atypical that in in this story in particular, the, the women have? We're talking about obviously on the show day, um, the murders in the room morgue and and the Perline letter. In the murders in the room morgue, the women have already been they've already been killed. There is no sort of saving them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that murder mystery historically has a sort of self-aggrandizing sort of nature to it, uh, way of putting the the reader in a position of of, uh, of fantasy, I suppose. Um, do you think it's it's strange that there's no way to save them from their fate? There's no like rescuing from the tower or anything. Is that atypical at all? Or? Yeah, the idea that like justice is the best that these women can get, yeah. rather than actually being rescued like you'd expect, like a knight from a tower sort of thing. Do you think that that's atypical or is that is that normal? Do you think for power? That's a good question. I think your opinion is uh, correct <laughs> there because this story by Paul, uh, if we're talking about uh, remorse, is is a clear break from what we've seen before. I mean, it's a focus on logic and rationality and, 
you, you have the entire uh, introduction to the story, which is just a whole treatise on how to apply logic and what, what that is. And for some reason, then Poe decided to have a murder mystery where someone applies logic to that. I suppose he could have uh, taken almost any mysterious situation and <clears throat> applied his uh, thinking to that instead. And in this case, it's women who are the victims, I think is even more shocking to the reader. Murder is the most uh, horrible crime. And I think uh, Poe wanted to use that instead of just theft or uh, kidnapping or uh, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was interesting because for us, it seems obvious, you know, having having this entire library of murder mystery fiction, well, obviously they were going to die. They're in a murder mystery story and they're in this, <laughs> this certain... Uh, the, the certain pinnacle of, of narrative, but <laughs> but I, I have to warn you, uh, Christian. I, I have gone over some of your your older discussions of Poe back in in 2019, actually in December, I believe, yeah. uh, of, of covering you know, the murders in the Remorgue and the Poe and Letter uh, with with Mr. Jim Noy, who we have uh, had on the show previously. Um, it, it seemed that you weren't entirely happy at the time um, with the solutions that Poe puts forward, like the the orangutan. Uh, I can't say we felt these stories are 100 percent perfect, but has your opinion changed? at all do you think no not really uh, <laughs> i still think the, uh, the solution solutions are uh, <clears throat> well a bit out there yeah i think poe was still influenced by wanting to have some kind of shock value yeah i mean also i guess the the whole notion of fair play wouldn't have existed at the time at least in the way that we expect it to with the strictures that the golden age set out exactly exactly uh, if he had invented everything back then then Wow, I mean, then, then uh, we, we're talking mm -hmm. about Poe, but I don't think he's the kind of household name that he would have been if he had done everything correctly from the very first time. Yeah, well, I mean, when you were discussing with Jim Noy of the Invisible Event, you kind of posed a hypothetical question about that, that if Poe had gotten everything right, who would have even wanted to continue the genre? Yeah. And it seems like one of the reasons iconic authors like Edgar Allan Poe and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle have had such longevity in their history is that their weaknesses and the way that their stories have dated inspire the generations that grew up with them to reimagine and improve on them. How do you think that shapes Poe's image as the grandfather of detective fiction? Uh, I, I think it's hard to overstate the influence he had he had on the on the genre particularly the puzzle plot genre there are things that definitely can be improved especially if you're looking at it uh, from the modern times that we are in now and uh, i'm glad you brought up doyle because i always like to make a comparison between poe and doyle doyle is obviously the more uh, famous person right now but if you look at uh, especially these two stories by poe and you look at the two uh, impossible crimes that uh, Doyle wrote, there are definite similarities between these. In Doyle's case, it's the Speckled Band and Thorbridge. Speckled Band is a definite classic, while Thorbridge is a bit less known, but <laughs> st still the better of the stories, if I yeah, yeah. can put it like that. It's also uh, <clears throat> a bit ludicrous in the way it's been resolved. You have the dying person shouting out or calling out the, the words, the speckled band, which is a fairly stupid thing to say <laughs> when you're dying. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's the you know the Monty Python guy writing ah on the wall as he dies. <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these these are quite silly things when you look at them. If you compare these two stories with the other story that they wrote, they are much more assured. They are much more 
reasonable. They have their drawbacks as well, but they sort of work in the real world. I think another thing that comes to mind there is when we were speaking with Anthony Horowitz about his latest A Line to Kill, he observed how his metafictions have taken traditionally the inherently smartest person in the book, the author who came up with it, Mm. and put them in as the Watson character, the opposite Poe, on the other hand, as Herds was alluding to earlier, comes out absolutely swinging with a level of self-aggrandizement of his detective and by extension himself with that charter on logic that you mentioned, Christian. Mm -hmm. Was Mm -hmm. that something that trickled down the years through Poe or was that a mainstay in the writing of the day? I think that it probably came with Poe. I I know uh, if, if you look at the conversations I had with Jim back then, he... Uh, also made sure to point out that this Watson, if we call him that, uh, he's not really Watson because he's much more stupid than Watson is. <laughs> Watson was at least a halfway clever guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this narrator, he's more of a Hastings. But I think this sort of disappears. And uh, if you look at the Golden Age later on, and other authors like Carr and Queen, they don't always have a, a, a narrator or a sidekick. And if they do, I don't think the sidekick is there simply to uh, make the other guy look, the detective look really, really special. They, they are still reasonable pe- people. I mean, Hastings is so stupid that <laughs> clocks stop. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so... so uh, the setup itself was very influential, especially in the beginning. Uh, I was going to say, I think the other thing that definitely has kind of evolved over the years, but never truly gone away from Poe, is the uh, Marie Roger style, you know, mm-hmm. hypothetical true crime mm-hmm. solution. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, it, it's perhaps even the most influential, because if you look at the mysteries today, mm. this re- real life uh, uh, drama, uh, is quite prevalent. Yeah, the, the whole unsolved mystery category. Yeah, absolutely. Much, much more than puzzle plots. I think also that angle of having characters being being real and, and not just being, you know, maybe they did it and that's the end of them, but having a sort of a, a dramatized stake in the story, I guess that's something that's become much more of the norm with, with murder mystery plots. Yeah, I, I agree. Definitely a point there. Uh, I think in the case of uh, Marie Roger, it's interesting to read, uh, but perhaps not something you should read as your first uh, first uh, mystery. Sure, yeah. <laughs> because then it will be your last. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, are they all are they all this dry? Yeah. All right. Oh, mm. definitely, but, definitely. But uh, I think I think we should also point out that the only one you could really recommend by Poe. For, for a modern reader, is perhaps the Perlion Letter. It is the greatest. You can't read uh, Rue Morgue anymore. I'd still, I'd still be pretty frightened <sighs> to recommend any of them in isolation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but 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 Perlion Letter, at, at least it's a story that sort of works. <laughs> That's so cruel. What a what a ringing we're, endorsement. We're, we're so cruel to Poe on this show. I feel awful. We really should have someone on who has nothing but good things to say about it. I mean, him. listen, this listen. What we're being cruel here to is, is the 19th century, not Poe himself. It's true. It's like those Greeks, wow, they didn't even have aqueducts. What a bunch of idiots. Like- <laughs> These barbarians. <laughs> I think, I think uh, we, we could be kind to Poe and say that he's the best of them them mm. yeah sure of that time so uh, absolutely if, if you like uh, stories from that time 
then absolutely, by all means, go and kick out yeah. Pope. I suppose that's where we should wrap today, though, Christian. It has been such a ple- pleasure having you here on Death of the Reader. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, absolutely. It's been very fun. <laughs> that was fun. We will have links up on the podcast if you want to check out any of the discussions with uh, Jim and Christian that we mentioned, as well as Mysteries Short and Sweet, Christian's own blog. So check those links out if you're interested. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Edgar Allan Poe as part of our Halloween spooktacular, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Edgar Allan Poe's The Murders in the Room Morgue and The Purloined Letter. Welcome to Full Spoilers. Welcome to The Solutions. Welcome to The Ramblings of Insane Men as we begin. First of all, let's just get into what actually happens in these stories. Let's start with The Room Morgue. We Mm. go through, we find a crime scene, a... A woman is missing. Her daughter is found dead on well, the floor. Hold on now. What actually happens, I believe, is that the daughter is found on the street. She's been, like, thrown out the window. But the mother has been stuffed mm-hmm. up the chimney. I may have got those mixed up, but truthfully, it doesn't matter. It's uh, true. It's <laughs> true. It doesn't really matter. But then, Herds, mm-hmm. then we go through and we, we quiz all of our witnesses and we take our investigation and we we travel around looking for solutions until eventually the, the key piece of evidence presents itself. A small soliloquy mm-hmm. from the criminal yeah. that no one can seem to understand. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, Herds, if no one can understand it, then it must be in another language that no one's spoken. It's a foreign criminal. It's the Chinaman. Yes. It's Knox's fifth rule. Right. Yeah, well, specifically, there are, there are two like voices heard. And we go through this whole rigmarole where the the people listening into the the mm-hmm. crime are like, I'm pretty sure it was in French. And then the Frenchman says, I'm pretty sure it was in German. Nobody can like deliberate what these two voices are saying or what language they were speaking to each other in. It's like the setup, the big piece of information now, we get. The official solution, Herds, is that an orangutan mm-hmm. may have escaped from a ship and gone and taken part in this mm-hmm. bloody transaction. Uh, but nonsense, yeah. I say. Okay, nonsense. Cool. You don't believe in the barber no, orangutan. No, I, I do. I do not. An orangutan that was hanging out with a Maltese no. sailor would just wanted to go and like. No, cut quite frankly, this is, ridiculous. Think that's the case? this is this is verging, okay, sure? Verging on absurd. I mean, I agree. and I want to pose a different theory that is compatible with both this and the purloined letter because it is a series. Oh, okay. In all good franchises, the solution must be all encompassing. We must explain everything mm. with one simple fact, no matter how many plot holes come of it. Now, I just want to let you know that my first thought here, Herds, was that clearly mm. the obvious solution was that Edogawa Rampo of uh, Japanese crime fiction fame had uh, I see, I see. gotten himself a time and space travel device, okay. gone into uh, the room org and uh, done the crimes. Okay. And, Are you telling you know, me? Was Hold this, on now. Are you telling th- me that this was this is my initial thought? I just want to let you know this isn't my final theory. Okay. It was okay. an interesting thought, and I, I was going along, and I thought, you know, maybe this could explain things. We could have it all figure out in the end, and mm. realize that it was actually just that there wasn't a Japanese character in the story to solve this murder mystery, and really, Edogar Rampo did it. Uh, and it was authors fighting each other because we've just come off the back of our metafiction section. And that was like the, the, the trick that's that true, you presented true, me with. I, I have promised some level of metafiction, although this is also a, a Halloween episode. Do you think that 
Edigawa Rampo might have some spooky elements. No, 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 this this was this was just a prototype. But I realized we we started to get into problems okay. here. We essentially had the Chinaman in the story, yep. the obvious outsider mm-hmm. in Edogawa Rampo, the one Japanese guy, and I thought that that's not acceptable. Mm. We also had to have supernatural and preternatural agencies with our time and space device, so out of the question. Mm-hmm. So hurt. Mm. I started to think okay. which of Nox's rules would Edogawa Rampo, knowing of Nox's rules, obviously, as he would have. Which of his rules would uh, he have tried to stray most closely to? And and you were right in there to assume that it would have been twin brothers. Mm. But also, I think one more. The seventh rule. The detective himself must not commit the crime. Okay. And also, Herds, the second rule that all supernatural and preternatural agencies ruled out as a matter of course. I think we can get dangerously close to all three of these rules, okay. but still escape unscathed. Mm, I like it. I My like solution, it. Herds, as hinted- yep. By the identity of the culprit as described in the purloined letter, as theorized by some literature critics out there who suggest that Dupont's father is the one responsible for the purloined letter. I think they're close, but they're wrong. I think this is a Jekyll and Hyde situation. Crazy pants. I think that Dupont has an alter ego he doesn't know about. Mm, okay. Bit of a bit of an area of science I'm not an expert on, but uh, I, I think it's in Poe's day, he wouldn't have been much of an expert on it either. But he would have been aware enough of it to think that maybe he could slip it past the watchful gaze of Sir Father Ronald Knox. So I suggest to you, Herds, mm. that this entire ordeal, wanting people to read more stories, wanting people to get more involved in inductive reasoning, is actually the jealousy of one personality oh. of Auguste Dupont. Mm. Jealous. Makes sense. Jealous if his other personality, D who has been doing these crimes, who speaks other languages, I think hurts, Mm. that the real criminal of this story is the physical body of our detective, but because it is not the mind of our detective. Thus, we have not broken the seventh rule. It is a mental condition. It is not supernatural or preternatural, just perhaps unusual. And because hurts, it is the same body and not an identical body, we have gotten around the twin brothers rule. We have... With one man, Dupont himself, solved all of the Dupont stories under the banner of this solution. You might say that this is an Mm -hmm. unusual natural solution. That's right. I dig it. I mean, this is something I I neglected to speak about in the first part of the show, but Mm -hmm. the narrator does get pretty unnerved himself Mm -hmm. seeing how amused Dupont is by all this murder that's going on. Here's a thought for you, Herds. Do you think that the reason that these extracts from the beginning of the murders of the Rue Morgue are so often excluded when we see it in modern print versions is because it is written by the alter ego of Dupont and they don't want to put the words of a criminal in front of new readers of the English language? I would have said that it is the writing of Dupont because he's, he's trying to rationalize his own inner turmoil. Exactly. That's exactly. my thought because it really is the railings of a madman. And I suppose it does make some sense that the mental aptitude of Dupin in his his regular detective form can only be matched by the raw physical prowess of orangutan Dupin, uh, who is able to stuff a woman mm-hmm. up a chimney that then takes four people to drag out of the chimney. No, this is a, a situation when our, our criminal is a regular human with the strength of at least four have men. Have you ever put a ring on your finger and then struggled to get it off? It was quite easy to slip on, but difficult to pull off. Uh, I think so. Uh, Well, you see, this is why you wouldn't understand what it's like to stuff a woman up a chimney. It doesn't take too much strength to get her up there in the first place. And, and, you know, just the icing on the icing of the cake here, Herds. The most important claim that Father Ronald Knox has made about the criminal in murder mystery. 
Mm. Not only are they often mentioned in the first part of the story, but they often just are the first person mentioned in the story. Uh, and you know who the first person mentioned by name in the story is, Hertz? Uh, Achilles? <laughs> <laughs> you want to- No, 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 no. Hold on now. Mm-hmm. There is a quote that I have here about how the question of what name Achilles assumed when he hid himself mm-hmm. among women, although a puzzling question is not beyond all conjecture. Uh, it's a paraphrase there. Is the that Achilles is the first person mentioned in the story? Wow, that's first. really interesting. You know, Achilles hiding himself among other people, just like D hiding himself among Auguste <laughs> Dupont. <laughs> I like where your head's at. I need to make sure you know that I didn't do that just to spite you. I did that to let you see that maybe you're onto something, Flex. Maybe I'm this definitely is why they often exclude mm-hmm. the opening section because of that quote about exactly. Achilles and the name that mm-hmm. he went by. Maybe the true name was D all along. That's right. Now, you, you haven't really talked quite as much about the Purloin letter. You mentioned a theory that perhaps... D is Dupin's father. Yeah, this was not something that I put much weight in, but it was something that I, I've I've read about in the past. No, I don't know that that would make a lot of sense considering the, I completely the agree. candor that Dupin uses to, mm-hmm. to engage with this person. But the puzzle is very straightforward that the police cannot mm-hmm. find a letter and it's because the letter is hidden yes. in plain sight. Do you think that uh, the idea of this letter, which has been turned inside out and sort of to seem unimportant but is truly the important uh, MacGuffin of the story does that figure into your theory well I mean one could take it as a metaphor for the turning inside out of the culprit's personality one could take it many such ways but we we know according to Dupont at the end the Mm -hmm. D is a desperate man I like these theories you're putting forward Flex I think they've really got some legs to stand on and since you are attempting to get a holistic theory I really am looking forward to seeing you trying to shoehorn Marie Roger's murder. You won't need a shoehorn next week for this theory. I think you'll simply find a well-fitting vessel for your foot. In any case, that has been our discussion of the murders in the Rue Morgue and the Purloined Letter by Edgar Allan Poe. Next week on Death of the Reader, we'll be covering the disappearance of Marie Roger. And Flex will once again be attempting to uh, use his author as the culprit theory to solve a real-life murder, which is very exciting. You are listening to Death of the Reader. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. Thank you for joining us for this catastrophe. We will uh, see you back here next week on the show. We'll see you next time.